Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18? Now, as we've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew here at Calvary on Sunday mornings, as we come to chapter 18, Jesus and his disciples are still up in the Galilee, laying low, if I can put it that way. Because things had gotten pretty hot in Jerusalem. He didn't want to provoke the Pharisees and scribes and chief priests to try to take him by force before the Father's appointed time to crucify him. So better just to lay low. They're up there, uh, you know, kind of just taking it easy. And he's doing some ministry, but just staying away from the hot zone, which is Jerusalem. But when they were in the Galilee, they came to Capernaum, and the disciples asked the Lord a question, a question about greatness. We read in verse 1, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, what Matthew doesn't record, but Luke and Mark do, is that this was something that they had been arguing about. Luke tells us, then, a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be greatest. Uh, Mark records, then, he came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? See, they weren't, you know, they were hanging back. Jesus is walking up in front, they're hanging back, arguing, right? And Jesus said, you know, he came into the house, okay, what were you guys arguing about on the road back there? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. Now, the word dispute there is a Greek word that means an argument containing a level of hostility. In other words, they get into a rather heated debate about which one of them was going to be the greatest in the coming kingdom. Now, that is nauseatingly carnal on the face of it. But when you understand that Jesus had just earlier, just not long before this, had gotten done telling them that soon he was going to be handed over to wicked men who would kill him. And here they are only concerned about themselves, not rallying around him to try to encourage him, comfort him, do whatever they could, you know, to make his final days or weeks. They didn't know how much time he had left. But, you know, and all they're worried about is who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. I mean, talk about pride connected to carnality and selfishness. But you have to understand, this was a running argument that Jesus' disciples had been engaged in almost from the very first time he had called them to follow him. And in fact, Luke tells us in chapter 22, verse 24 of his gospel, that they were having the same argument uh, in the upper room Uh, at the Last Supper, the night before his crucifixion, which caused the Lord at one point to take a towel, pour some water into a basin, and stoop down and wash each one of their feet as he taught them one last time. That true greatness in the eyes of God isn't measured, listen, by how many people you are over, it's measured by how many you place yourself under as a servant. Now, he had taught them this earlier, Okay, in fact, actually earlier from the cross, but uh, it's going to be happening in, in Matthew 20, where he basically, once again, he, this was something he kept trying to reinforce in their thinking, that they needed to be think of greatness in terms not of lording over, but of getting under, of serving. He said in Matthew 20, verses 25 to 28, he called them together once again, He says, you know that the rulers of this world lorded over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. 
Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first, or in other words, great, among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others, and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, guys, unfortunately, this is a lesson that is not learned easily or quickly among those who call themselves Jesus' disciples. And I find that many of Jesus' disciples today are still having the same argument. They're still arguing among themselves in a way by their constant fighting for positions of power and prestige in the church. Who's going to be the greatest or who is the greatest? Neglecting completely what our Lord taught us about true greatness in God's kingdom. So first we see in verse 1 the question of greatness. And then in verses 2 to 4, we see the quality of greatness as Jesus outlines it. Verse 2, then Jesus called the little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is telling his disciples that before they can achieve greatness in God's kingdom, guess what? They first have to be converted and become members of the kingdom now look i believe the disciples all except for judas were genuinely saved yet still very carnal as it was obvious from this constant arguing among themselves who was going to be the greatest one in the kingdom but let me just say this i'm convinced that a lot of the murmuring and complaining in the church today a lot of the power struggles the infighting the division is caused by those that jesus described in revelation 3 as lukewarm lukewarm in fact we read in revelation chapter 3 as he addressed a letter to, to seven churches this one he addressed to the church of laodicea revelation 3 starting in verse 15 jesus said i know your works that you are neither cold nor hot i wish you were cold or hot so then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot i will vomit you out of my mouth that's a pretty strong statement I would rather you were cold or hot. What does that mean, first of all? Well, of course, hot means on fire. That's not a problem. person that's on fire for the Lord, totally living for the Lord, going all out, no problem there. Who are the cold ones? Well, these are the folks that really, you know, they're not spiritually minded at all, all right? They don't pretend to be Christians. There's no pretense, all right? You, you give the gospel to them and they say, you know, I'm not interested, or get out of here, you nut job, you know, that kind of thing. You know, just dismiss it out of hand. Well, at least we know where we stand with these folks, right? At least, you know, they're under no illusion or delusion that they're saved. And so we can deal with that. I'd rather deal with a person who's honest with me and themselves than somebody who's playing games, right? Who are the lukewarm ones? The hot and cold, those are obvious. And there is some debate as to who the lukewarm Laodiceans represent. Let me just tell you who I think they are. I think the lukewarm Laodiceans represent religious unbelievers who attend church and claim to know the Lord, but are not genuinely saved. These are those who stop short of going all the way into salvation and settle into a comfortable religiosity or what some have called churchianity. Now, let me give to you some of the characteristics of these folks. And this is a little side trip, but it does get into the idea of what it takes to become a true member of the kingdom of God. Let's look at what those, you know, just going to church isn't, isn't make you a member of God's kingdom, obviously. So what are the qualities of some of those who are not really members of the kingdom but are going to church, like those lukewarm ones 
in Laodicea, although we see them in all churches uh, today in some degree. Uh, a lukewarm person is worldly and doesn't take obedience or holiness or sin seriously. Now, certainly, there are carnal Christians who can fall into some of these categories. But when you start adding them up, it makes a pretty clear picture of who these folks really are. All right. Number two, they may read the Bible from time to time, but it's only a religious exercise. They have no intention of allowing it to change their life by obeying what it commands. Number three, they are often but not always sporadic in their church attendance. Their prayers consist mainly of before and after meals, if that. They never evangelize or take seriously the command to be a light in this dark world and are always consumed with worldly possessions rather than heavenly rewards. And they often work their way into places of power and authority in the local church because these folks love to be in power. They love to have control over people. Jesus said, my disciples, true disciples, want to get under people in the sense that they want to be servants. The people of the world and some of those who come into the church thinking they're saved will always want to be in some kind of power position. They do want to be in charge. They love to have power. They love to be in authority. They love to call the shots and control the church. And those who would oppose them, they come at them with a viciousness that is absolutely remarkable. I just got done yesterday with a group, with a, a get-together of local Calvary uh, senior pastors and wives. And we went around sharing different prayer requests and things and writing down and praying for each other. And one of our Calvary guys, God opened the door for him to take over a church, not a Calvary now, uh, I'm not going to tell you where it is, it's in the area somewhere, uh, but a church that has been there for, oh, I don't know, maybe 100 years, okay? And I think some of the people started the church that are still there, all right? But this is a church that has been without a pastor for a while, uh, a church that tends to drive pastors away, okay? And this pastor felt very led by the Lord to take over this church. They were looking for a pastor. He did a few messages on, for a month on Sunday mornings, and they liked him, and they voted to call him as their pastor. Well, he was not prepared for what was coming. Uh, God has given him incredible grace, him and his wife. Um, but you have to understand, this church, and there are good people in the church, but the church is being controlled by several groups of these lukewarm individuals, these uh, religious unbelievers, these Christian phonies, basically. And as he has tried to bring life into the church by starting the ministries, teaching the word, so on and so forth, each group has come against him. It's demonic. It's absolutely demonic. The viciousness, the lies, the things that they have said, as each of them, as he's taken on each of these groups of the power of God, and they have gone berserk as he's threatened their power base, and they've risen up and they have attacked him in ways you can't even imagine. One of the ringleaders of a, one of these little sects that are up there, she believed God was calling her to be a pet chaplain in the church. Yes, you heard me right, a pet chaplain. And she wanted the church to begin to conduct services for animals that had died, you know, in a way to help the people that lost pets cope, but, but it was all about, you know, having these pet services, and she's the pet chaplain, called by God, and, and he says, we're not having pet services, and I don't believe you have been called by God to be a pet chaplain. 
Well, that unleashed a tirade of emails everywhere in the world, you know. Uh, how dare you say I'm not called to be a pet chaplain? And Oh, it's ridiculous. I mean, just one other example. In a church that old, oftentimes, if you've ever been in one of these really old churches, they will have the podium on one side of the platform and like a lectern on the other. And people will come and read scriptures on the one side, and then the pastor will ascend to the podium and preach from the other side. Well, this pastor says, you know, I'm, I'm used to just preaching from a pulpit in the middle of the room, from the middle of the platform, right? So he gets into church one day early and moves things around, gets rid of the lectern, puts the podium into the center there. Well, the problem with that was when you'd walk into the church with the podium on one side and the lectern on the other, at the back of the platform, the back wall, there was a, an altar which had a large bronze cross and a op big, large, open family Bible. Well, now the podium is blocking some people's view He's a pretty big guy, blocking some people's view of the Bible and the cross. So they took great issue with that. You're standing between God and the people. He says, well, God's not the brass cross and that open Bible. And, I, and I, you know, I thought to myself, you know, this is the problem with a lot of the churches today. They have been taken over by these religious hypocrites, these, these phonies who have gotten a hold, and you know, the whole church suffers because of a few. And little by little, God is weeding these folks out and bringing more good folks, godly Christians in. The way he likened it was this. He said, look, I can't get all these people out of here, but here's what God's doing. It's like a glass with uh, a layer of dirt in the bottom. You can't get in there and get the dirt out. So what you do is you just keep filling it with clean water, and eventually it just pushes all the dirt out. And as God keeps bringing in more and more godly, spirit-filled people, it is pushing these people out more and more, and the church is coming alive. The youth group is growing. Things are happening. But see, this is what you know, we're seeing today. You know, why did Jesus say it's better to be cold or hot than lukewarm? Look, you're hot, you're on fire, no problem. You're cold, at least we know where you stand, we can deal with that. Lukewarm, these are folks that already think they're saved. When people are lukewarm, it means, and I'll quote one pastor who said, because these smug, self-righteous hypocrites are far more difficult to reach with the gospel than cold-hearted cold rejectors, because they have a form of godliness, right? They're not atheists. They believe in God. They believe in the Bible, although they never read it or try to live it. Now, where did all these lukewarm people in the church today come from? I personally believe they started flooding into the church when the focus of the church moved away from feeding the sheep to entertaining the goats. It's what some have called the seeker-sensitive model. Maybe some of you have read Gary Gilley's book, This Little Church Went to Market. Because the mentality with uh, these churches is that the church is really a corporation. You guys, you are the consumers. And I actually heard an elder in one of these churches say this, he said, we give the customer what they want. And what they mean is, we have designed our church to appeal to unbelievers, and we draw them in, we give them what they want so as to bring them in. And what happens is, you water down the church, and you fill the church with these lukewarm people, and it just creates all kinds of problems. A lot of the spirit-filled people begin to leave. And more and more what happens is you have a church populated and dominated more and more with these types of folks. And it may grow, but it's dead. As somebody has said, even graveyards grow. 
people say, oh, it's growing. How could it be dead? Even graveyards grow. So don't look at numbers as an indication that there's life there. But it's not just the seeker-sensitive or seeker-friendly model. You have all these Word of Faith churches that constantly play on people's carnal desires for wealth and success and prosperity. They're loaded with these kind of people, too. It's the day in which we're living. It's the end times church. It is the church of Laodicea, which would be a model of some of the end times churches. And where was Jesus uh, in relation to the church of Laodicea? He was doing what? Knocking to what? Get in. He's not even in a lot of these churches. He's knocking to get in. Because they pushed all the life out, really. But getting back to our text, because we're talking, I didn't digress for no reason. I mean, he's talking about, you know, Lord, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Guys, let me tell you something. First things first. Unless you are converted and become his children, well, you won't even be a member of the kingdom. And that's why I took a little child and put the child uh, in their midst to act as as an illustration, which then he said in verse 3, you know, unless you're converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. The word converted there is a Greek word that means to change one's ways, to turn away from something with the intent of turning to God or to repent. And that's the idea. Jesus is saying, before you can become a member of God's kingdom, first of all, obviously, you have to turn from your old life, which is being lived for Satan's kingdom, okay? Living your life, going in a direction where you're moving away from God toward sin. Obviously, if you're going to be a member of God's kingdom, you have to turn around, right, from where you're going. But simply turning away from sin doesn't automatically make a person a child of God or a member of his kingdom, does it? For that you must believe in and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. We know that, right? So then why didn't the Lord Jesus just say that to his disciples? Why did he say to them that they had to become like little children before they could enter God's kingdom? Well, to understand what Jesus is saying, we need to understand the quality or the characteristic of a little child he was referring to. And let me just say this. The word little child, there's a Greek word pideon. It refers to a very small child, sometimes even used for an infant, but mostly for a toddler. And I believe that's the context here. I believe Jesus was talking about a a child uh, who was old enough to run to him when he called for the child to come. So a a little toddler, maybe two and a half, three years old, calls for this little child, comes running to Jesus. Children love Jesus. He puts the little child in their midst and begins to use the child as an illustration to teach not only about greatness in the kingdom, but how you even get into the kingdom in the first place, right? Now, I personally don't believe the Lord was saying that to be a member of God's kingdom, we need to, we need to replicate all the qualities of little children in our lives. There are some things that characterize small children that we shouldn't seek to copy. Little children tend to be selfish, foolish, undiscerning, easily deceived, preoccupied with their physical needs, and prone to throw temper tantrums if they don't get their way. I have seen a lot of Christians like that. Um, but that, that's another thing. All right. But, but little children have some positive qualities too, don't they? They are open-minded, trusting. Uh, I love the fact that little children, little toddlers, they're not prejudiced at all, are they? A little child doesn't care what color the skin is of their playmate. They're just having a great time playing with another child. 
It takes a while for their parents or society to push into their little minds the prejudice that will eventually then follow them into adulthood. I love that about kids. They're not prejudiced. They just love to hang out with each other, play, and have a good time. Now, as beautiful as those qualities are, they were not what Jesus was referring to when he said that to enter God's kingdom, we had to become like little children. And the reason I know that is because he zeroes in on the quality he's got in mind in verse 4. He says, therefore, whoever what? Humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom. Well, verse 3 said, if you don't humble yourself and become like a little child, you will even enter the kingdom of God. Greatness, guys, first worry about entering God's kingdom. And if you want to really be great in the kingdom, then you need to continue to humble yourself as a little child. He stresses humility to these guys. Why? Because humility is the exact opposite of what the disciples were displaying through their selfish pride. Look, humility doesn't hold its head high. It bows its head low. And that's the point. To enter God's kingdom, one has to come not standing straight and tall with head erect like you're somebody. You have to come to the kingdom humble, bent over. God really showed me uh, an illustration of this. The first time I went to Israel, back in the mid-90s, and at one point, we went to Bethlehem, where we visited the Church of the Nativity, the place where Jesus apparently was born. If you go into the Church of the Nativity, you go at one point into a grotto area, and you see a star on the floor, and that marks the spot where Jesus was born. You know, like they know, you know? <laughs> Anywhere in Israel where Jesus was or walked, they put a church. They would have put a church on the Sea of Galilee when he walked on the water, but they couldn't figure out how to keep it floating. But everywhere, there's a church, okay? But we, you know, so we go see the churches, all right? So we're in Bethlehem now. We're walking up to the Church of the Nativity. Big, ornate structure. I'm used to ornate churches in America. You see a big, ornate church, usually there's a very big, beautiful door that you enter into that church through. What took me back the first time I visited this church was you're approaching this very, very large, ornate church, and to get in, there is just a little opening, it's about five foot tall. And we had to stoop down to enter into the church, which I thought was odd the first time I walked through it, until I realized what they were trying to communicate. They were trying to communicate, this is a holy place. This is where the Lord Jesus Christ was born. And you don't walk into this holy place standing tall with your head erect like you're somebody. You come into this place stooped low in humility. And that's exactly what Jesus was trying to communicate to these men. Nobody comes into the kingdom with their head held high, shoulders back, as if the kingdom is lucky to have them as a member. We have to come bending low in humility. Remember what Jesus said along these lines in the Sermon on the Mount? He said in Matthew 5, verse 3, he said, Blessed, but the Greek word there means, oh, how happy. Oh, how happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the Greek word he uses for poor is tokas. And it speaks, listen, of a total destitution, 
like someone who, had, who was severely handicapped and cannot work at all and is therefore totally dependent on the gifts and generosity of others to survive. Keep that in your mind. The Greeks did have another word for poor panas. Panas was a word that was used to describe a person who couldn't work a lot but could work a little bit and barely made enough to live. That is not the kind of person that Jesus was talking about in Matthew 5, verse 3. Let me paraphrase what I believe he is saying. He is saying, blessed are the spiritual beggars. Blessed are the spiritual paupers, the spiritually bankrupt, who realize they have nothing to offer God to purchase their own salvation, but are totally dependent upon his grace. They are the happy ones. Why? Because theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. Listen, a person must be tokas in spirit to enter God's kingdom. He can't even be panas, okay? He can't even think he can work a little for it to earn it. He must realize that he's destitute or she must realize that they are destitute and bankrupt spiritually and can do nothing to earn salvation that then breeds true humility true humility look humility although very important to god is not a quality that's valued very much in our society today as a society we look down on the humble for the most part we consider humility a sign of weakness today our motto today is blessed are the proud the confident the pushy they shall be exalted or in other words promoted above the rest, and they often are. They shall be great and successful. Now look, as a Christian, I've always known humility was important. But I must confess, I never really understood just how important it was in the eyes of God until I started reading a little treasure of a book by Andrew Murray entitled Humility, The Journey Toward Holiness. Let me read to you a passage from that book, and I'm going to read you a couple others but let me just start by reading you this. He says, When I look back upon my own Christian experience, or at the church as a whole, I am amazed at how little humility is seen as the distinguishing feature of discipleship. In our preaching, and in our living, in our daily interaction, in our families, and in our social life, as well as fellowship with other Christians, how easy it is to see that humility is not esteemed the cardinal virtue, the root from which grace can grow, and the one indispensable condition of true fellowship with Jesus, the fact that it is possible for anyone to say of those who claim to seek holiness that the profession has not been accompanied with increasing humility is a loud call to all earnest Christians, whatever truth there be in the charge, to prove that meekness and lowliness of heart are the chief marks by which they who follow the Lamb of God are to be known, end quote. Look, humility was the chief characteristic of Jesus' life. Turn to Philippians 2. And let me just read to you a passage that you are all very familiar with. Many of you have memorized, no doubt. We're talking about humility being the chief characteristic of the Lord Jesus. Listen to what Paul said in Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. He said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. In other words, some of your paraphrases put it this way, who did not consider equality with God something to be clung to, 
but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond slave is the idea, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has exalted, highly exalted him, and given him the name which is above every name. Now, let me stop and say this. When I read that book, Murray made a point I had never thought about, all right? And let me just paraphrase it. You have to read the book. He does a much better job than what I'm going to do trying to, uh, to explain it to you. But he said that when God first created Adam and Eve and put them in the garden, right? They were innocent. They were like little children, just like this toddler, okay? They didn't know sin. Uh, all they knew is God. They loved the Lord. They, they, they interacted with him every day in the, in the cool of the garden, right? I mean, it was a beautiful paradise, where humility, and that was the point Murray was bringing out, man was created originally as a humble creature, like a child. And what did Satan do, the prince of pride? He came down the form of a serpent, and he beguiled Eve, and she ate the forbidden fruit, and gave to Adam, and he did eat, and of course they fell, right? We know that. But do you realize what happened also? Why did Satan also want to get at Adam and Eve? He wanted to rob them from the very humility that was so inherent in God's nature. He wanted to rob them of the image of God in that regard, being humble, so he can fill their heart with pride, which would lead to all kinds of horrible consequences, and hatred, and violence, and prejudice. And when Jesus came down... Yes, he came down to die for our sins, but do you realize, and this is where this blew my mind and, and why this is such an important subject. Jesus, in part, came down to return us to the image of God that he made, first made us in in the garden by giving us the supreme example of humility as the God of the universe set all of his glory aside, not as deity. He would never stop being God. He set his glory aside and became humble born in a stable, right? Grew up in poverty, in humility, when his captors were punching him. Isaiah says they pulled the beard out of his face. They beat him up so bad, Isaiah tells us he wasn't even recognizable as a human being. Yet he humbled himself. At any moment he could have spoken a word, the same word that created everything and vaporized all of these people. But he humbled himself. And went to the cross, not only to restore us to God, but to restore the image of God that he made us in, to be humble like our Savior. That's why the Lord Jesus, when his disciples asked him who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom, and he said, you know, first guys, first things first, worry about getting into the kingdom, okay? And for that, you have to be like a child. He said that to them. Instead of just telling them to simply believe in him for salvation, because even our faith in him, listen to me, doesn't become real or saving until it's mixed with humility. As James says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the what? Humble. And this is why Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you repent and become as little children, humble is the idea, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. He said this because humility isn't a normal part of our earthly, fallen human nature. 
Pride is now. And pride says, I'm worthy to earn heaven. I can earn salvation. Watch me go. Watch me light the candles. Watch me pray the rosary. Watch me feed the hungry and clothe the naked. Watch me do all these good things to prove how good I am and watch me earn my salvation. Those folks will never see heaven. Ever. Because true humility before God, the kind that causes a person to bend low in humility and enter the kingdom is the kind of humility that says, God, I am nothing apart from you. I can do nothing apart from you to please you or to glorify you. I am not worthy of the least of your blessings. I am absolutely bankrupt. I'm totally destitute of anything good in and of myself to earn what you are giving as a free gift. I can't earn it in the smallest degree. And I thank you, Lord, that you are offering salvation as a free gift. And I humbly bow to your goodness. And I'm thankful for your grace that has invited a sinner like me to be a child of yours. See, that's the kind of heart that God looks upon. That's the kind of humility when mixed with faith allows a person's entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And folks, let me just say this to you as we bring it to a close. Humility is the result of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. Don't miss this, okay? It starts with conviction, then leads to brokenness, and then repentance, and finally results in salvation, which is to receive Christ as Lord and Savior. But once we have received Jesus, the Holy Spirit moves into our hearts and begins to make us more and more like Christ every day. 2 Corinthians 3.18, right? Listen to me. How does the Spirit make us more and more like Jesus every day? By making us more and more humble. You may not realize this, but humility is so important that everything else the Spirit wants to accomplish in our lives as Christians is dependent on it. Let me give you an example. Would you say as a believer that bearing the fruit of the Spirit is an important thing? It's the main thing, isn't it? Because the fruit of the Spirit is God's character. And as we grow in Christ, the goal is that God would bring forth the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, through our lives. These are all attributes of God, aren't they? And so when you bear the fruit of the Spirit, you're, you're demonstrating the character of God to this world. So that's supremely important, isn't it? But as you read that list of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 3, did you notice that humility was not among the list? You say, well, why is that? If it's so important, why isn't humility listed among the fruit of the Spirit? You know why? Let me say this. Because humility is the soil. Is the soil from which all the fruits of the Spirit grow in our lives. Conversely, pride is the soil that chokes out all the fruits of the Spirit in our lives. Murray goes on to say, humility is the only soil in which virtue or the fruit of the Spirit takes root. A lack of humility is the explanation of every defect and failure we experience as Christians. Humility is not so much a virtue, fruit, along with the others, but is the root of all. 
because it alone takes the right attitude before God and allows him as God to do all, end quote. And guys, once again, humility isn't a normal part of our earthly, fallen, human nature, pride is. And therefore, humility isn't something we can conjure up. It's an attribute of God, listen, that he works into our lives as we abide in Christ. Let me read you one more quote. One last quote from Murray. I'll let you get the book on your I love Murray as an author. But Murray said, and I quote, we must, we must come to admit that there is nothing so natural to man, nothing so insidious and hidden from our sight, nothing so difficult and dangerous as pride. And acknowledge that nothing but a very determined and persevering waiting on God will reveal how lacking we are in the grace of humility and how powerless we are to obtain what we seek. We must study the character of Christ until our souls are filled with the love and admiration of his lowliness. We must believe that when we are broken under a sense of pride and our inability to cast it out, Jesus Christ himself will come to impart this grace as a part of his wonderful life within us, end quote. That the more you draw closer to Jesus, the more you abide in him, the more he will impart humility because it's not something we can manufacture. It's not within us. Pride's within us. And that's going to result then in humility toward others. What is humility toward God? It's the attitude that says, God, I am nothing. I can do nothing apart from you. What is horizontal humility? Humility towards our fellow man and, and, and women? It's just simply this. You are more important to me than I am. Now, let me say this to you. The reason there is so much fighting in the church, marriages on the rocks, families falling apart, infighting, power struggles, among true Christians now, okay? You know why all that's happening? Because we have moved away from this central cardinal principle, attribute, and we're pursuing our own agendas oftentimes. I think all of the problems in the church today, in families and marriage, can be traced back to a lack of humility. It's pride, right, that causes us to draw battle lines, demand our will, fight for our rights, not compromise, it's my way or the highway, that kind of thing. All of that is direct. The, the amount of time you spend with Jesus will determine the amount of humility you walk in. So all this fighting and all this bickering and division in the church is a, is a screaming testimony to how little time Many Christians are spending with the Lord because the old nature is rising up. Martin Luther said, and I quote, God created the world out of, no out of nothing. And as long as we are nothing, he can make something out of us. And to close with what Jesus said in verse 4, Therefore, whoever humbles himself, whoever humbles herself as a little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. May God give us grace to draw close to Jesus, to start dying to self, to start seeing how much pride we really have, how it's choking out all the fruit of the Spirit, leading to carnality, infighting, divorce, and so on. This one principle could revolutionize our entire Christian lives if we just pursue Jesus for his true humility.
May God give us the grace to do that. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for a very simple yet powerful, all-encompassing principle. Lord, how foreign humility is to, in many of our things. We don't even give it the time of day. We don't even think about it anymore. So often we're so busy thinking about pushing ourselves to the front, getting our way at all costs. Lord, forgive us. Humility is what really allows all the fruit of the Spirit to grow in our lives. But we can't manufacture it. We have to get it as we spend time with you. You said, learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. You didn't say, learn from me. You said, learn of me. In other words, we learn things by spending time in your presence, just learning of you. Teach us humility, Lord. Pour it into our lives that we might be truly your disciples, little children who will be great in the kingdom someday because we, lo we are lowly now today. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.